Oxford Bibliographies celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. In a decade, OBO has grown from 10 subject areas to over 40. And this fall, we will see the introduction of a new subject area, one that is highly relevant to our COVID-19 afflicted times, Oxford Bibliographies in Urban Studies. This is Caitlin Phillips with the Oxford Comment. Urban Studies is a broad interdisciplinary field that encompasses everything from the social sciences and the humanities, to architecture, engineering, and environmental sciences, just to name a few of the subfields. What connects scholars across these disciplines is the emphasis on the lived experiences in specific places that feature large, dense, and heterogeneous populations. Basically, city life and everything that comes with it. Our episode today features three interviews with scholars involved in the launch of Oxford Bibliographies in Urban Studies. They spoke with us about the new subject at large, their individual contributions, and attempted to answer for us the question on everyone's mind. What is the future of cities in a post-COVID world? Our first guest is Richard Dilworth, Professor of Politics and Director of the Center for Public Policy at Drexel University, and the Editor-in-Chief of Oxford Bibliographies in Urban Studies. Hello and welcome everyone to the Oxford Comment. We're here today with Richard. Uh, Could you introduce yourself for us, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, My name is Richard Dilworth, and I'm a political science professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I also run the Center for Public Policy at Drexel, and I study urban politics, urban political development, community economic development, urban environmental policy, and public policy. Great. And uh, just to get us started, um, can you define for us urban studies? Yeah. So it, well, it's the study of things that are urban, which I guess is uh, really broad. And I can break that down a a little bit. So I think in in terms of, of what the subject is that's actually studied, it focuses primarily on, and, and focuses mostly on sort of the world's largest urban clusters, that is the world's largest centers of population density. And at the very, very most basic level asks questions about why um, you have uh, un- the uneven um, spatial clustering of industries, of people, of social practices, of governments, and then more specifically looks within each of those urban areas at at social economic uh, phenomenon within those urban areas. And that is often broken down into specific academic subjects. So there are distinct subdisciplines in urban economics, urban history, urban politics, urban sociology, and then uh, especially the discipline of geography is is very heavily focused at least portions of the discipline of geography are very heavily focused on um on urban areas it's also of course urban anthropology and then urban archaeology in terms of the study especially of ancient urban societies and most of those subdisciplines are represented by academic journals um urban economics urban affairs review journal of urban affairs there's even a journal called urban science Then there is the actual field, the actual academic field of urban studies, um, represented by the flagship journal, Urban Studies, probably the most influential um, uh, urban studies journal in the world. And then there's also the um, International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. Then there are departments within universities uh, that are specifically urban studies departments that tend to be interdisciplinary, 
high concentrations oftentimes of geography. Sometimes geography and urban studies departments are uh, combined. For instance, at Temple University, there's a department of geography and urban studies called GUS. Urban studies programs tend to be these kind of interdisciplinary hubs that look a lot like other, other kinds of similar sort of subdisciplinary studies departments, Africana studies, women's studies, environmental studies sometimes. So it's a, it's a distinct academic field um, of people who study the topics that I talked about, but it also is probably most strongly represented in various academic subfields that stretch across virtually every social science discipline and some, uh, some natural science disciplines. There's actually been a sort of focus uh, on bringing natural science and, and uh, social scientists together under the rubric of urban science, but it hasn't made a huge amount of progress. And how did you uh, first get involved with Oxford bibliographies, um, either as a, you know, in general research earlier or now as an editor in chief? As an academic, I like the reference format. I think that the, the really important thing for reference formats is that they give you a quick introduction and get you really up and running on a, on a topic and introduce you quickly to the major arguments within a specific field or specific subfield. And I have always been, uh, as an academic, fascinated by urban political development, the growth and structure of uh, cities, focusing primarily in the U.S., but also across the world, and collectively the phenomenon of urban political development and urbanization across the world. So those two things, urban studies and a reference volume, were really attractive to me. Now, I also have known the reference editor, Toby Wall, at Oxford University Press. In fact, if I'm not incorrect, he was one of the original people to propose the bibliographies uh, at Oxford. And he was looking for editors, asked me for recommendations of some names, and I ended up taking it on, which is, I, I'd say, actually a, a strong word. We've got a really good uh, editorial board with uh, Eugenie Birch from the planning school at University of Pennsylvania, Wei-Ping Wu from Columbia, Tom Vecino from the political science uh, department at, at Northeastern University, now he's an associate dean, and Vanessa Watson from the uh, urban studies program at the University of Cape Town, which has a really amazing center for the study of African cities. So we've got a great editorial board and uh, we've got really wonderful staff support uh, at Oxford University Press. It, it's a really, really broad, really collaborative effort. Um, and then, of course, we have the, at this point, approximately a little over 80 contributing authors. So all told right now, I mean, it's a, it's a collective enterprise of, of, you know, well over 90 people. Um, and I hope within the next year, it'll be getting up towards 150, 200 people as we increase our contributors and increase the number of bibliographies. Great. Um, I'm going to throw you just a little bit of a curveball here and switch up the third question just a little bit. Um, so we asked the contributing authors, you know, where did they start with their research, um, you know, specific to their subject. But I'm just wondering, you know, what is perhaps your you know, goal or what it is you hope that the bibliography, the urban studies bibliography will encompass, you know, what, what do you, what sort of are your hopes um, for this grouping of, uh, you know, articles? So I have lots of hopes and lots of ambitions. <laughs> when we started this, 
um, we we divided the the bibliographic entries uh, into sort of several subcategories that we wanted to address. So there were sort of academic concepts in urban studies that we felt we had to cover. You know, those are the the I think oftentimes relatively obscure outside of sort of the academy and specifically within urban studies, the sort of the the dominant conceptual models that are used to define urban studies. So, you know, that's things like we have entries on uh, agglomeration and we have uh, an entry on planetary urbanization. And I'm actually writing a bibliography on uh, urban growth machines. So we have these sort of academic conceptual models. And I think what's really exciting to me is to really get into historical conceptual models to really sort of provide a, an archeology span of urban studies one great example of that is a bibliography that we have on morphology, on, on a sort of specific strain of the study of urban change that, that refers to a, a relatively narrow but really fascinating subfield that sort of uh, spanned architecture, urban planning, and urban studies. And my, my real hope there is we hit the sort of the big conceptual models, but that we also get the ones that I think are really sort of sort of interesting niche models. The second category is not conceptual models, but sort of urban phenomenon. So urban poverty, urban religion, urban violence, where we have a bibliography, we have a contracted bibliography not yet written on uh, urban warfare. There we, we run an interesting, we run a sort of a little bit of a balance because of course things, social phenomenon and all other phenomenon that happen in urban areas basically happen everywhere. And since the majority of the world lives in urban areas, and that's probably only going to increase in the future, you know, everything that happens in the world also happens in cities. So we can't include everything. We don't, we don't want to. We want to look at phenomena that is in some sense uniquely urban. We try to be somewhat narrow, but at the same time, recognizing that, that virtually every kind of social phenomenon has some sort of urban angle to it. So that's a that's a second category, sort of sort of urban social phenomenon. Third category or main sort of uh, defining authors within the study of cities and urban areas. So that's a relatively narrow category and one that may grow, but probably one that will cap itself at a certain time, simply because by definition, there are only a few really important defining authors that are worthy of a bibliography. We have a bibliography on David Harvey, indisputably one of the most influential, possibly the most influential uh, urbanist, urban geographer of the 20th and, and conceivably 21st century. We have, of course, a bibliography in the works on Jane Jacobs. A somewhat more niche uh, bibliography in that category is a bibliography that should be forthcoming soon on Charles Tibu, who was uh, an economist who wrote a really defining article for the, for the study of urban economics in uh, 1954 called A Pure Theory of Local Expenditure. So. From that article, there's a sort of flowering of other literature that still goes on today, but we, we have an article specifically about Tibu. Uh, that's a third category. Fourth category is uh, cities themselves. And our goal there is to ultimately hit every single major city in the world. That is a real challenge. 
because, I mean, that's hundreds of bibliographies. We want to start with the really sort of big cities. And of course, the definition of a big city has changed dramatically, uh, especially over the last 50 years. Major urban growth in the world has been in what we call the global south, especially Africa and Asia. We initially really focused on those cities. And because those are emergent big cities, they have the least literature written about them. Uh, not always, that's not always the case, but it's frequently the case. So we really worked hard to try and find people who could put together interesting um, bibliographies on cities that don't get as much academic attention. Kigali in Rwanda, Lagos, we have a bibliography that will be coming out on Manila. Those are the, you know, the sort of emergent really big cities about which there's not a huge literature. But in, in fact, because there's not, there's a really fascinating, uh, it, the, the bibliographies themselves are really fascinating because the authors have really dug deep to really find interesting sources. There are other ones where I'm not sure that there's enough academic literature that we're actually going to be able to do it, but we're going to keep trying. So a real key example there is Kinshasa. That's a really difficult city on which to find a literature. Then we have more traditional cities. Also in the Global South, uh, we have a bibliography on Cairo. Uh, we have a bibliography on Delhi. We're getting one on Mumbai and Calcutta. We have one on Shanghai. We could easily do 20 to 30 Chinese cities. We have bibliographies on two out of the three largest urban agglomerations in North America. So we have Mexico City and we have Toronto. We don't yet have New York City, just because we focused in particular on the sort of the, the hardest to find city bibliographies. So we're getting together prospective authors now for a uh, bibliography on New York City. And in fact, in the bibliography on urban history that we have, there's a there's a, a sort of sub bibliography on New York City. So we do have New York City covered to a small extent, but obviously we have to do more. And I would also say our bibliography on Mexico City is is really a very wonderful long, I think over 10,000 word bibliography. Some cities which are not as big cities anymore have a really extensive literature on them that's really fascinating. In the American context, uh, Detroit is a uh, is an example of that, and we're trying to get a bibliography on Detroit. Uh, we've got a bibliography on Paris. We don't yet have a bibliography on London, but that should be coming soon. And one of the more interesting ones that I think really shows the challenge, another challenge, is that in a lot of places, because we're international and we're looking at international urbanization, we run into uh, a challenge where for a lot of cities, especially in Eastern Europe, there's an extensive literature, but it's not an English literature. An example of that is Kiev. So we have a bibliography on Kiev, but uh, probably half of the sources are in Ukrainian or Russian, which is fine. I mean, there we, we have them in the, in the bibliographies, and obviously Oxford University Press is an international publisher, so uh, it appeals, obviously, to non-English speakers and, and readers, but also then each bibliography has an English language description. So, for instance, in our bibliography on Kiev, and we actually have the same, we found the same thing for Sao Paulo as well in Brazil. Even for the non-English literature, we have English language descriptions of those books and articles, and sometimes web sources, to, to explain what they are and uh, what their significance is in the larger body of literature. Uh, and I expect that'll be the same for our bibliography, our forthcoming bibliography on Moscow. So the uh, final two categories I'll mention are we're doing academic disciplinary bibliographies. So we have a bibliography on urban history. 
urban sociology, urban anthropology, urban economics. Uh, we'll get one on urban politics. What, what those bibliographies are is within each academic discipline, we just want to um, we want to hit the major works. So somebody can just say, if I want to know sort of what what the field of urban his what the subfield of urban history is, they can go to that bibliography and get a get a quick guide through that through that subdiscipline. And finally, the final category that we chose was time periods. So we also have entries on, for instance, cities in the early republic, cities of the Ottoman Empire, pre-colonial cities, post-colonial cities. So that's just a simply a different way of saying, you know, that you can find a distinct literature that looks at cities, oftentimes across the world or in specific geographic areas, that are looking at those cities in terms of the role that they played in the world or in a specific location at a certain point in time. So yeah, so it seems like it's going to be an extremely comprehensive uh, collection of things. Um, so we'll get to our last question, and you know, it's the unfortunate we have to ask everyone question uh, during these times. What do you think is going to be the effect from all of this social distancing and self-isolation and sort of the people in urban centers sort of not living, not existing, not you know being out there um, within their urban center. Um, how do you think this is going to affect you know either cities themselves, but also the, the the research and the study of these cities? That is a great question. So the global pandemic right now, of course, is in some way, shape, or form a product of urbanization. Um, it's a it's a product, obviously, of resource extraction and uh, the entry of new viruses as a result of resource extraction coming through marketplaces. And of course, originating in a very large marketplace of Wuhan in China, sort of what in China is a mid-sized city, what in the United States would be a massive city. But uh, certainly there's an urban connection to the pandemic. And certainly early maps of infection rates in the United States were almost simply maps of population density in the United States. Now that's changed a little bit over time as the pandemic spread, but at the same time, certainly urbanization plays a role in the spread of the pandemic, uh, which I think is significant. Significant as well, of course, because then the first things to close down are cities. And uh, that has a major impact on global consumption, on global supply chains, on the, on the global economy. That's obviously incredibly significant. Some of that will undoubtedly be permanent. Um, you know, uh, one of the really wonderful things about uh, especially historic cities is their amazing marketplaces of historic storefront retail. And incidentally, we have a bibliography on urban retail. Is that going to come back? I mean, so many traditional stores in, in cities across the world with historic commercial corridors have been closed. Those are uh, oftentimes small businesses that are the most at risk of closing permanently. And because a lot of them are sort of legacy businesses, it's not clear that they're going to open up. And I think we could really see a fundamental change in the face of retail uh, in the world, especially uh, in major cities, that is going to be a permanent shift towards internet retailing, towards big box retailing, that's going to be, to my view, somewhat uh, unfortunate as a real hit to one of the sort of key aspects of urban life and urban socializing, a, a unique form of urban socializing. 
So uh, that's significant. Will cities become less significant in any respects because of the pandemic? I doubt it. Will the pandemic reverse the the dramatic global rise of urbanization across the world, and especially in places like China, India, Africa? I seriously doubt that. I think we have a global economy that depends on urban clustering, and that is a structural factor that would take more than a honestly, more than a pandemic to fundamentally dismantle. So I think that the general trend of urbanization will not be impacted, but I think that the the specific fabric of urban life will be in some respects, in, in some respects conceivably fundamentally altered and fundamentally changed. As someone who dearly loves her local uh, stores and everything, it, it definitely pains me to sort of ruminate on when all of this is over, whenever that may be, uh, how different the landscape of my neighborhood will look. Um, so it's certainly something I've also just been thinking about as a, as a New Yorker of watching, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, you know, places announce we have to close, we can't make it anymore. So yeah, it'll definitely be interesting in the, in the after. <laughs> It will. I mean, I I am sort of optimistic in some respects. Small businesses will still thrive, especially, obviously, the sort of gentrifying small businesses like food and hospitality and those kinds of service sector industries. And and I mean, most smaller retail businesses were sort of disappearing anyway if they weren't in that specific category. Barbershops were making a comeback. Independent bookstores were actually, at least in the United States, making a real comeback nationally the, you know, after long declines, those are all in retail places that are high income enough that I think that they might, that they might come back. And the barriers to entry are, are, are low enough. There's still, there's going to be, there's going to be a glut of empty retail space that uh, will probably lower the cost, the barrier to, to entry to starting relatively small retail businesses. There'll be a lot of people who don't have jobs who might be interested in starting retail businesses so um, and who might have access to capital. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. In poor neighborhoods where, you know, you have barbershops, you have sort of uh, lower income food stores, a community that depends on their, you know, on, the, on, a, on a dollar store in, in a real way, even if it's a chain in a lower income neighborhood, it's operating at smaller margins. That's where I think there's a real concern. It just in terms of the in, in terms of the real health of some some neighborhoods that that were already struggling prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I have a feeling that we could probably talk about how it would be affected for uh, many more minutes. Um, but I'm going to wrap us up there. Um, thank you, Richard, for joining us and and taking the time to talk with us. Oh well, thank you for having me. This was a real pleasure. Our second guest is Zach Taylor, assistant professor and director of the Center for Urban Policy and Local Governance at Western University, and the author of the article Toronto. We're here today with Zach Taylor. Zach, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Uh, my name is Zach Taylor. I'm a professor at uh, Western University, which is in London, Ontario, Canada. So let me ask you, uh, how did you get involved with Oxford Bibliographies? Well, I've been a fan of Oxford Bibliographies for a long time. I've used them for teaching. I've used them for my own research. Um, so when a colleague of mine, Richardson Dilworth at Drexel University, got in touch with me and asked me if I'd be interested in contributing to this new bibliography, I was really excited. I was really eager to be involved. And I saw it as a way to, to kind of broaden and, and accelerate some 
research that I'm doing for for a book that I'm writing about Toronto politics. And this was a really a great opportunity to read about the city from a wide range of angles. So the tagline for Oxford Bibliographies is your best research starts here. Um, and so where do you where did you start personally um, with your entry on the subject? Well, I was fresh off of writing a comparative book that that looked in part at Toronto, but also some other cities uh, looked at their urban planning history and their history of metropolitan governance. Um, so my starting point was to review my storehouse of literature about those topics uh, in relation to Toronto. And that was great. But the, the challenge for me was to reach outside my home base of, of politics and, and planning from a more political science -y perspective and, and to try to map out literatures in, in social and economic history cultural studies, architectural studies, indigenous and queer studies, and so on. And this this took a lot of work to, to try to move outside my comfort zone. Um, I had to do a lot of library research and, and I consulted with colleagues in other fields as well. I did did bring in other readers to make sure that I was doing justice to the to the the full sweep of it. I feel like urban studies is one of those things that I've heard the term a lot. Um, but I'm not sure I've ever actually had someone like define it for me. And and the 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 sort of note of it being a newer, um, you know, and has it evolved over time? I mean, is the, like the urban studies of 20 years ago the same as it is now? Urban studies really emerged. That label emerged in the 1960s, mostly in the United States, dealing with uh, the kind of urban crisis that was happening at that time. Right? It was very concerned about. Um, uh, the economic decline of inner cities and uh, racial violence and and uh, discrimination and so on, but it's really become a global enterprise, right? Academically, uh, you have people who consider themselves urbanists or, or people who do urban studies in every in every part of the world. So it's uh, uh, it's it's a growing field, um, and it remains an interdisciplinary field, and I think that's that's a really good and productive thing. So Zach, uh, tell us a little bit about your selection and what makes Toronto so interesting. Well, I think that Toronto is is kind of an underappreciated city. It's it's not really on the radar, certainly of of uh, many scholars outside of Canada, but I think it's a really special place. It's one of the fastest growing uh, metropolitan areas, really in the Western world, and has been for quite some time. Um, certainly in North America, it's it's. Uh, uh, adding an extraordinary number of people, uh, a million people a decade, uh, most of it through international immigration. And because of that, it's it's really an extraordinary melting pot of different cultures. Um, it has the highest percentage of uh, foreign-born and, and non-white residents of uh, any North American city. Uh, and I don't think a lot of uh, Americans uh, appreciate that, especially. You know, it has a diverse economy, a diverse society. It has, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a very complex uh, local government system. It has all these things that are people who study urban studies uh, are really, really uh, get excited about. So I'm really happy to uh, to contribute my knowledge of Toronto to the uh, Oxford Bibliography of Urban Studies. A million people a decade. Wow. <laughs> It's uh, like you you think of places like Atlanta, you know, as being high growth cities or Los Angeles or something like that. Toronto grows faster than those places. Wow. Uh, yeah. Certainly something I, I did not know. Wow. Yeah. 
That is, you said that and I like, I made like a face. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable place. Come visit if you ever get to travel again. (laughs) Yeah, someday, someday. (laughs) So uh, urbanist scholars um, often focused on the lived experiences of larger social systems. Um, But right now, uh, you know, we aren't really part of a large social system. So post-COVID, Um, How do you think all of this social distancing and the self-isolation, you know, how do you think this quarantine is really going to affect, um, you know, urban uh, spaces in the future? Well, I think it's going to affect urban spaces, uh, living spaces, working spaces, uh, mobility, the way we move through cities a great deal. Um, You know, I've uh, sitting here in my basement speaking to you. you know, I can't help but reflect on how sociologists and anthropologists for for a hundred years have celebrated the sociability of cities. Right? They've seen them as this place where diverse individuals and groups can come together and learn to get along um, because living in close proximity, they have to. And so there's this rich tradition in urban studies of of exploring and celebrating the the, the conditions of of cooperation in, in complex urban societies and conflict as well. You know, and at the same time, we see economic geographers who've seen how agglomeration, right, concentration of activity in cities is a, has been a huge driver of economic growth and technological innovation. And along with that, rising inequality, right, cities tend to be increasingly unequal. So when we think about this emphasis on sociability and proximity and interaction and, 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 and people uh, coming up against each other, um, you know, what will social distancing and self-isolation do and what sort of lasting effects will it have when the virus uh, is, is gone? I think COVID-19 is, is, will undoubtedly change cities and urban life in ways that we don't fully understand and don't yet appreciate. I mean, just to give you a few examples, if everyone works from home, you know, what happens to all these downtown office spaces, right? When, when businesses realize that they don't need them anymore, or when universities realize they don't need all these big buildings anymore, uh, what will happen, right? Uh, You know, will the kind of innovation that occurs through in-person chance encounters still happen? Will people still have as many opportunities to encounter and maybe understand people unlike themselves? I I don't know. What's going to happen to public transit if people feel vulnerable to disease, right? Well, is this going to set back decades uh, by of, of work to shift people out of private vehicles in order to reduce traffic congestion and, and carbon emissions and so on. I don't know, uh, but one thing's for sure, COVID-19 is gonna, it's gonna change cities and, and with it, it's gonna change urban studies. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. It, uh, it was really interesting talking to you and, and hearing some of these uh, definitions and and things that you know I don't really know much about Um, so thank you very much for joining us today. All right. Our last guest today is James Mansell, Associate Professor in Cultural Studies at the University of Nottingham and the author of the article Urban Soundscapes. We're here today with James. Uh, James can you introduce yourself for us please? Sure I'm Dr James Mansell and I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Cultural Media and Visual Studies at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Excellent. Uh, welcome. Um, so for our listeners, um, give us a, just a clear definition of urban studies. 
So for me, uh, urban studies, it's a really broad area of research that covers all sorts of different kinds of academic terrain. But at the core of it, I would say it's the study of both the physical infrastructure of towns and cities and also the social identities and relationships that we form in those urban environments. So some researchers do more of one thing and the other, but I think both of those things are equally important. And for me, uh, my, my emphasis is on the second of those. I'm, I'm most interested in the social identities and social relationships, and especially those formed through the sense of hearing and the sense of listening. Interesting. Um, so how did this work get you involved with Oxford Bibliographies? I think that the connection is that in 2017, I published a book with the University of Illinois Press called The Age of Noise in Britain. And it's about the way in which people living in urban environments in urban environments in Britain in the first half of the 20th century made sense of where they were and who they were through their sense of hearing and particularly through their sense that they were living in a very noisy world, that their towns and cities were getting more and more noisy as the 20th century went on. So our tagline for Oxford Bibliographies is your best research starts here. Um, so what were some of the first topics that you were researching um, you know, for your paper? Uh, well, I guess I started where, where I was most familiar on the topic of noise. Um, so I started with my own research, which is very much about the history of noise. And there's a very, very well-defined area of, of people working on the cultural and social history of noise. But I was aware that a reader of my bibliography may well be interested in, uh, in a wider body of research. So I also looked at people working on current research to do with the architecture and planning of cities and the way in which noise is controlled through those kinds of professional practices. Uh, which is is completely separate and different to the way in which historians write about the way that noise has been managed in cities. Um, but nevertheless, it's a it's a complementary um, way of understanding the, the 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 different forms that urban studies take. So I started with that. I I, I've, I compiled a bibliography uh, of work that's most close to my own research on the history of noise. I branched out to other kinds of research on on urban noise, including architecture and town planning. And then I, I, I created a map out from there of all different kinds of research that uh, is focused on the importance and significance of sound in urban environments and the ways in which people listen and hear and engage with what are called urban soundscapes. So right now we're, we're living in a isolated, distanced, uh, how do you think that this time frame is going to affect, um, you know, just sort of the general study of urban studies? I mean, is this kind of a, a weird time and how is this going to, to affect research and some of the conclusions that you are all coming to? Sure, it's it's been a really interesting time. I've been um, conducting research on uh, contemporary urban sound as well as historical urban sound. And we were doing this before the pandemic hit. And the moment that um, we all went into lockdown in the UK and it was very similar in many different parts of the world, it was interesting that my research informants were immediately noticing the sound environment around them, particularly people I was talking to were, were, were immediately wanting to talk about hearing birdsong and hearing the sounds of nature in cities because all of a sudden uh, there was less traffic noise and particularly in the urban UK there was less uh, aircraft noise. So people were immediately aware of the fact that their, their urban environments were, were quieter than they were before, sometimes to the point of describing that as a kind of silence. And then noticing the sounds that were persisting around them, particularly those of the natural world, 
but also the sounds of their neighbours. They became more aware of hearing uh, what their neighbours were doing, children playing out in the back garden. And the relationship that people had to those sounds, it seemed to me, uh, changed a good deal. So the, I, I think there's lots of things that will be written and said about the way in which our our relationship to our urban environments changed through our ears and through our listening attention uh, during the pandemic. But I also think it's really interesting that this um, this current age that we're living through will, will probably, I would predict, return us to an earlier era of thinking of our urban environments primarily in terms of uh, public health. So as a historian interested in the 19th century and the 20th century, I'm used to people thinking about their towns and cities as places of health all the way through the 19th century. Cities were places of, of cholera outbreaks. In the early 20th century, in the period that I write about in terms of noise, uh, people were interested in noise or worried about noise primarily because they thought it was going to cause mental illness. There was a condition called neurasthenia, which was both a typically urban condition and a, and a condition caused by being exposed to too much urban noise. But those ways of thinking about the urban environment in, in the earlier period of the 20th century and through the 19th century were primarily uh, often about thinking of the city in terms of its, its uh, causes of ill health or as a public health environment. And I think that's fallen away over the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, certainly in uh, Western European and North American contexts. And I think in those places we're now being reminded or we're returning to an age of thinking about urban space as a space of health and, and illness. Yeah, as someone here in uh, Brooklyn, New York, I can definitely attest to the suddenly there are bird song um, <laughs> phenomenon. Um, yeah, uh, it was it was surreal. Those first couple of weeks here um, you know, it was very bizarre. Um, I don't live in a particularly busy neighborhood, but you know, busy enough. It's New York. Uh, I think that was the one thing that I mentioned to most people that I talked to when they asked how I was doing in the city. I said, "It's weird. It's quiet." <laughs> I just happened to be doing a project where I was asking uh, a group of museum audience uh, members to make postcards, sound postcards, which play on a record player. We were actually doing that anyway. It wasn't a pandemic project. And many of them, about half of them, recorded birdsong as their, as their choice of sound. And they, they turned that into a postcard. But it was, it was really, really noticeable that people were all of a sudden hearing birdsong, um, which has to do with quietness. But it's also a, a, a really prominent feature of reports of fighting in the trenches of the First World War. So perhaps there's something else there about living through a, a, a traumatic experience that your sense of hearing is, is potentially heightened in those contexts. You're more attuned to your environment because it's become a threat. Now, did the UK go through that spate of fireworks going off all the time like the US did here in June and July? We did have some fireworks. So we had a weekly uh, ritualized clap for the National Health Service here. So every Thursday, we would um, all come onto our front doorstep and clap for healthcare workers and other key workers. And some people were letting off fireworks. So that was every every Thursday at eight o'clock. It's now finished, but it was for the first couple of months of, of the pandemic, we were doing that all, all across the nation and it received um, a very large amount of media coverage. Um, again, that, that's got a very interesting long history of the holding of a kind of ritualized moment of, of either quietness or silence or applause connected to um, experiences of, uh, of, of trauma and of conflict. Yeah, we were doing that in the UK for sure. Yeah, here in the States, we it was more of a nuisance. Um, oh, they were yeah. they were sort of going off randomly, um, but I thought it was really funny 
they were doing it sort of in the suburbs, in the city, I mean, sort of everywhere was happening. And I found as a city uh, dweller, it didn't bother me as much. I'm used to noise and, uh, you know, it, it, it was unsettling a bit, you know, it was annoying, um, but my family and friends that live in quieter, you know, suburban neighborhoods were absolutely unnerved um, by the, the, you know, the, just the month of random fireworks. Right. Um, but, you know, I just thought it was so, it was like, you know, noise as a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But so it wasn't, it wasn't too disturbing. No, we didn't, I don't think that was a, a feature of the lockdown in the UK. I think possibly there's quite strict limits on when you're allowed to buy fireworks here, but um, no, we, we didn't notice that. But there's some very interesting things written about politics of fireworks, particularly in the Chinese context. In, uh, in, in urban China, there's a ongoing debates about um, the urban nuisance of, of, of fireworks. So there's some, some interesting things written about that in urban studies. I'll have to do a little bit of extra research here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, James, for joining us today. Uh, it was really enlightening. Thank you very much. We want to thank our featured guests, Richard Dilworth, Editor-in-Chief of Oxford Bibliographies and Urban Studies, Zach Taylor, author of the article Toronto, and James Mansell, author of the article Urban Soundscapes, for joining us on this episode of the Oxford Comment. As always, we would like to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their continued assistance on each episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Oxford Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. I'm Caitlin Phillips. Thank you for listening.